you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Well, I would uh, just begin by saying good morning again. Uh, Here we are again in this second round in very unusual times. Uh, I I hope this finds you uh, in your most reverent pajamas or however this finds you. Uh, I hope you're already planning on what you're going to wear on Easter Easter morning next Sunday. Uh, I can imagine it's going to be quite lovely with you sitting there in your house, but uh, that's just all of the things the unusual things that have changed. Uh, I'm reminded, as you are, at almost every turn that we are living through an extraordinary time, unquestionably. I'm, I'm equally and routinely reminded that we have an extraordinary God that will use this time for great advantage and for great purpose. I was given a clip from David Wilkerson last week uh, many of you, you know of David Wilkerson. He was an evangelist who is best known for his book, The Cross and the Switchblade. He's the founder of the addiction recovery ministry called Teen Challenge and the founding pastor of the Times Square Church in New York City. He was commonly known as America's youth pastor. This was his quote that I was sent. I see a plague coming on the world. And the bars and the churches and government will be shut down. The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it has never been shaken. The plague is going to force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles. And repentance will be the cry from the man of God in the pulpit. And out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. And David Wilkerson wrote that in 1986. I'll I'll tell you quite honestly, I I hear a lot of this kind of stuff, and I'm sent quite a bit of it, and I'm not as fascinated with the prediction that was made. Uh, Certainly, it's it's got real interest, but I'm much more in tune with the prophecy attached that, that God will use that moment to introduce and usher in a new great awakening, and I certainly hope... that that's what we're seeing today. I find this to be one of the most interesting things of this entire bizarre chapter. People who cared so little for life, their own lives, have now made living the number one thought each day. It's evident in even the most minute things that we do each day where we physically are, the presence of other people around us, the food we buy, the places we choose and choose not to go, everything now is about life and the preservation of it. And it's probably a strange observation that is not unique just to me, but we can see that this desperation for life is in such contrast and a radical departure from just a few weeks ago when the value of life was so marginally low. A few weeks ago, the entire world seemed to care little about the preservation of life, and many, or most, were even without much notice, 
motivated to kill themselves trying to live. How fast and how thoughtless and recklessly we move through each day. Where we go and what we do trying to find peace of mind. Millions of dollars in thousands of ways trying to find that elusive peace. We were motivated to eat to our own destruction, but doing so in the name of pleasure. To drink to find acceptance or relief. Worry and growing anxious in all things. We were killing ourselves trying to live. And now we're at a 180 degree different place with every action being motivated by an attempt to live. I find that switch interesting. Especially if we'll just take it a little bit into the spirit and realize that, that God says that he is life. He is truth. And that strangely, in this unusual time, there is a pursuit of life. So maybe there will be something to David Wilkerson's prediction. Maybe this will be a turning of a heart, a turning of a mind back to life, spiritual life, eternal life, because this becomes much more difficult to manage and even work our way through if we don't have our eyes fixed on eternity. If we don't have our eyes fixed on points beyond us, assurance is made, promise is given, this becomes a uniquely different time. So many things that people were doing, what we ate that we knew was harming, or harming us, what we did, where we went, how anxious we were, how worried we were, all of those things that were draining life from us, now there's urgency to maintain life. Now, by such a strange and destructive virus, we seek urgently to live. Personally and only personally, I'm not going to say this belongs to anyone else, I don't believe God's hand is behind this. Except by the very design of what happens when we, by our choice, move out from under that which God has established for our peace, for our love, for our joy, and, our, and ultimately our life. He doesn't move. He has built for us, according to Romans 6, this newness of life. It's a life that is built on perfect love that casts out fear. It's a life that's built on peace that passes understanding, bought and paid for, that deals with our anxiety. It's a, it's a story of joy unspeakable and full of glory that cancels our anger. It's a story of holiness that cancels the impurity of things that we have accepted and tolerated in our life. When we move out from under that which he has done, that which he has bought by his blood for us, then the consequences not, don't become him, they become us. I personally don't believe he's behind this. I will gladly say someday that I am wrong. But I don't believe he's behind it. But I do believe he will use it to a great end. I believe he will use it to accomplish that which we, we already testify about God and about who he truly is. How about the words to this song that we sing so often? You know, this is our testimony. This is what we sing. And we sing it willingly. We sing it eagerly. Listen to these lyrics. Let the poor man say, I am rich in him. 
Let the lost man say, I am found in him. Let the river flow. Let the blind man say, I can see again. Let the dead man say, I am born again. Let the river flow. Holy Spirit, come. Move in power. Let the river flow. So we are testifying. We are sharing Sunday by Sunday, week by week, that we believe, we trust that uh, he, he is capable. He will transform through this to his glory. I believe that with all my heart. I don't believe there's a wasted moment in these days that we're experiencing if we'll search for those things that he would have us see and the things he would have us hear. I believe with all my heart that this body of Christ, now present on the earth, not just this local body, but the body of Christ on the earth right now is being fully prepared to return to the faith behind those words. I believe that this is the place where the poor can become rich, a dead man can live again, where broken can be made whole, where foolish can be made wise, where bad can be made good, and, a, and good can be made better. It's not in a building as we're fully discovering. It's in a place called Jesus and by his spirit in us that this will happen, that it can move so quickly through the world that we become the Old Testament dispersion. We become that by which the good news of Jesus Christ can travel quickly again. It's not in this building. It's not in what we have formerly trusted. It is in us and in our relationship with him. Romans 14 verses 8 and 9 say this, I'm sorry, but it begins with verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to, to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. The great commission that we were given is given to us solely on the basis of his lordship over us. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. What's that therefore attached to? It's attached to the fact that Jesus says all power was given to him. I can go, therefore, because this Jesus, who has all the power, is now my Lord. He has lordship over me. He has lordship over us. And if we don't understand, if we don't get to something more basic about what that truly means, then we will ride through this difficult time in a very shaky boat. We will, he, he's trying to teach us, show us, and explain to us this lordship. Let me continue. He says then, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That is us, our commission given to us because he is Lord. I'm going to use a word here that will make some uncomfortable because it seems so set apart from what and how we know God as our Father. That relationship, father and child, speaks of endearment and tenderness. However, I must bring up a word that seems more harsh than that, or we will miss something about him being Lord. Lordship speaks of ownership. We don't consider God as our owner. But if we don't, we won't understand him as Lord. And again, there's so much teaching that needs to be done here in this moment about this lordship and about this ownership. Because we understand that a slave being set free could become a bond servant and reattach themselves to their former owner. We haven't been brought struggling, kicking, and fighting into this relationship where we, have, where we now truly have an owner. Yes, he's the creator of God. Yes, he made us. Yes, he formed us. But we step back into the relationship saying, I'm willing to let you be my owner. I'm willing to do that. I want that for myself. So it's, it is odd for us to consider God as our owner. But again, if we don't understand it, we won't understand what it means for him to be Lord of my life. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 26 says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. As has been recognized and well noted over the last few weeks, the things of God seem to move seamlessly along. There is no watermark across the blue sky giving him credit. Why not? Because he's the owner. There is no signature on the bottom right hand of a sunset giving him full rights to that picture because he is the owner. There is no chiseled signature on a mountainside. Why? Because he's the owner. There is no copyright on the songs that he gives birds to sing because he is the owner. They are marked by the one who owns them, who made them, he is Lord and of, of the earth and all of the fullness thereof. Why is this necessary? Because I don't believe everyone thinks that God is bigger than what's going on on the earth right now. He is Lord of the earth and of the fullness thereof. He is the owner. He is our father. We are his children. He is our Lord. Lordship announces respect. Lordship announces a very powerful implied allegiance to, Lord, to, to our Lord. Lordship ultimately results 
in obedience. If we don't understand this ownership that we have been bought, paid for with the price by his son, we will not understand nor step willingly into this lordship and recognize that he not only is my father, but mixed with that, so meshed with that, is this reality that I was bought and paid for. My life is not my own. It belongs clearly to him. That needs to be settled. If it does, it begins to carve out anxiety. If it's known and we can accept it, it begins to bring a peace in the place of those things about which we have been fearful. I don't know of of any other time where this needs to be so apparently clear. We don't have other things to lean on right now. I, I do, I respect, I trust those things that the CDC and others are asking us to do to protect ourselves and others. I willingly do those things as a, as a good citizen to you and of this country. I gladly do those things. But my trust is in someone who bought me, paid for me, and to whom I belong. He is the owner. He is our father. We are his children. He is our Lord. I pray that it announces respect. I pray that it announces from us this allegiance to an owner that we know that we have been bought with a price and that it ultimately leads to obedience. I want to go somewhere this morning in this thought and in this teaching, kind of stopping there for a moment, almost like I'm starting another sermon, but these two, need, these two things need to come together. I'm going to ask, if you have your Bibles and you're following along there, I want you to go with me to Psalm 46. And I'm going to read this psalm, and then, and then we're going to talk about this particular Psalm 46. It begins like this, to the chief musician for the sons of Korah. And I'm going to stop there for just a minute because we need to get this in context. In Numbers chapter 16, there, there rose up someone who, uh, who led men in a rebellion against Moses. That is the Korah that's being mentioned here. This Korah that is mentioned in Numbers chapter 16 rose up and led men in a rebellion against Moses. The sons of Korah would be those who followed suit and rise in rebellion against God's anointed. So the sons of Korah reflect all the different times when the rebellions have rose up against whoever God had anointed and appointed to lead his people. And then it says, a song, a song upon Alamoth. This word means, if you look it up, the definition says, set to maidens' voices. It expresses the heroism in this, psalms, in this psalm of a woman's faith. So this is, this is interesting that it was addressing a rebellion 
And it says a song upon Alamoth. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But again, the words mean set to maidens' voices. Something that the women would sing. So let's continue. In verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, man, what a powerful word. Therefore, because God is my refuge, because God is my strength, because God is that very present help in trouble, therefore will not we fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters therefore roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolation he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the, the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. <coughs> Excuse me. There is about this scripture that included both Psalm 47 and 48. It's one song. A religious conversation about when or for what specific purpose was this song written. What was the special occasion? I'm only going to discuss one of the possibilities, and there's two reasons why I'm only going to discuss this one possibility. The first is, I trust the teacher and the research behind his conclusion. The second is, because no matter the situation or no matter the circumstance, the outcome is still true. You pick this up in any generation, in any struggle, this is a hymn given in that struggle. So from this point forward, Dale Cain, the pastor here right before me, will become your teacher. Several years ago, Dale, being a part of the International Mission Board, traveled all over the world, and in part of his travel, he, he, he did years of research behind a book called The Story Behind the Psalms. Now, what I'm going to share with you in this next few minutes is his conclusion about this particular song, why it was written, and for what situation was being addressed. To set that up, I'm going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I'm going to read portions of this. I, I would encourage you to read this whole thing, verses 1 through 13 and then 14 and beyond. I'm only going to read a couple of verses to set this up. So in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it says, It came to pass after this also, 
that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with, him, with them others besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. So, so basically Jehoshaphat is sitting in a position where three armies are coming at him at once. You talk about a feeling of being overwhelmed, of a battle coming to your doorstep that you don't even imagine how you can win. And everything he says from from verse 2 through verse 11 is him crying out to God. It really goes back to last Sunday, him talking to his friend. Because he challenges God in this. He reminds God of things that he said. He said, you know, he challenges him. He says, is this going to be our reward? Are they going to get by with this? And he's talking, not just in this elevated position of God and a child. He's talking face to face with God who is his friend. He's asking hard questions and seeking honest answers. In verse 12. In the kind of in the conclusion of his desperation, he says this, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And all of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now, I love that picture. In the face of a desperate moment, in the face of no answer, of all uncertainty, under King Jehoshaphat, as he brings them together, they stand there, and he's holding the wife of his hand. These fathers are holding the hands of their children, and they are turning their faces toward God, all of them. All of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now, I I tell you, I hope you get a message there. I hope I get a message there. What a remarkable time to stand with our wives, our husbands, our children, with our faces fixed upon the Lord. He is our refuge. He is our shield, our ever-present time, our ever-present help in times of struggle. If there were nothing else that came out of this message, I would pray that you would hear that. So from here, I'm going to share with you what Dale wrote about this psalm in his book, The The Stories Behind the Psalms. This is from Dale. In 2 Chronicles 20, verses 14 through 19, that's, this is where I stopped reading and he, the story, his story begins. We find a man, a prophet, by the name of Jehaziel. He's brought into focus. Jehaziel brought God's message to Jehoshaphat and spoke to him concerning the fact that on the morrow, he was to go into battle and see the working of God for miraculous victory. In verse 17, Jehaziel told Jehoshaphat that he would not need to fight in the battle, but that God would be victorious and see that Jehoshaphat won the battle without even fighting. 
what a tremendous portion of Scripture this is for us when we also fight battles in which it seems likely we are totally outnumbered. So much of the time, we let the circumstances of a situation defeat us before, before we are ever in the battle. Jehoshaphat was in a position that looked as if he would never be able to win such a battle as confronted him on that day. However, on the next day, miraculous things happened. Prior to that day, a very important psalm was written. I believe this psalm was written on the eve of the deliverance of Judah. My personal opinion is that this is the psalm of Jehaziel and that he wrote it in respect of what he had said to Jehoshaphat during the day. Jehaziel gave great instruction in this psalm of hope for dependence upon God. Two verses become very important to us in the very first part of the psalm. Those verses are Psalm 46, 1 and 2. We are to realize and to remember that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Because of this, we are not to be afraid regardless of our circumstances. We are to have faith in God. We are to believe that he has all things in his hand and we are to trust in him. This was the instruction from Jehaziel to Jehoshaphat the night before going into battle against the Moabites and the Ammonites. However, verse 10 is a verse of great instruction, and especially when things look very dismal from our perspective. Verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. What great instruction. Be still and know that he is God. In times of dismay, we want to panic. But in times of dismay, God says to us, be still and know, experience, know factually that I am God. What great instruction. Be still and know that he is God. I cannot think of any greater instruction than this for each of us in times of difficulty and in times of trial, but to be still and know that he's God. Following verse 19 and reading uh, and the reading of Psalm 46, continue with this chapter and see how God totally delivered Jehoshaphat and Judah from the hands of the Moabites and the Ammonites against his enemy. What great and tremendous victories God gives to us when we are still and with confidence to know that he is God. In those following verses, it seems strange that the battle plan for this victory, where nothing would happen to Jehoshaphat and there would be no casualty, he said, I want you, when you march into battle, I want you to put the choir, the women, in front. Now remember the, the instruction at the beginning of Psalm 46. That, that word to, to say it was, it, was a, it was to be sung by maidens' voices. Alamoth. And here in this battle, 
under the instruction of God. I want you to put the women. I want you to put the smallest instruments. We would think of the drums marching into battle, creating that cadence. And God says, no, I want, I want the music in the front. I want this remarkable music in front. Again, so many lessons, so many thoughts, so many expressions of the things God would have us know right now. We will not get this. Psalm 46 will be lost to us if we don't understand, accept, receive fully that he is my owner. Again, what difference does it make? Because an owner will protect that which he paid for. An owner will protect as a father protects. An owner has made an investment, a powerful one, a mighty one, into who we are to establish us fully. And he will protect that investment. He will stand in the gap. He will he will shield, he will defend, he will, he will protect that which he has invested so powerfully in. We are his children, bought with a price, secured by his spirit. Let each of these instructions, let each of these words, let each of these scriptures bring us into the security of his lordship over us. I love that, he, that he's my father. But I am equally glad that there's a place in my life where I was set free by, by what his blood did, the fact that he is the Christ, the anointed one who came and paid a price. But I am equally glad that there was a point in my life where I not only let him become the Christ of my life, the Savior of my life, but I yielded myself right back under his lordship so that he could be the Lord and I could be that which he protects and defends and establishes behind his shield. Father, we thank you this morning that everywhere we are, listening to this at various times from this point forward, by those who will hear, I pray, Father, that the warrior in us will rise because we understand we don't have to fight this battle. You fight it for us. It is by your authority we get to, we get to say, we get to respond when you say, go ye therefore. I can go therefore because all power of heaven and earth was given to you. I move in that authority. Let each one of us move in that authority. Let life so flow from us. Let it so be released by us that the atmosphere in every place we go would be transformed. Let the smile on our face tell a story. Let the joy in our voices bring hope to others because we know something. We know someone. We know the promises made. We know the price that was paid. We know that we are owned by a loving father and we yield ourselves 
to that ownership. But Father, all the time that I am so grateful for what you have done and who you are in our life, my eternal prayer, my focus beyond it, says, Jesus, come quickly and carry your bride away. Come quickly and sweep us off our feet. Come quickly, Jesus, and bring us into your presence. Come quickly. I love this life, Father, that you gave me but I know it's temporary. I want my eyes fixed on another one, on an eternal one, so that I can be more useful now, knowing who you are as my Savior, who you are as my Lord, so that I can sit in two different cars, six feet apart, still counseling, still talking, still seeing you working mightily, or meeting in a park six feet apart from the person I'm talking to, still watching you liberate, bring broken back to whole, healing all that you do. Thank you, Father, that your power has not been altered, that you're still looking for the Abrahams, you're looking for the Isaacs and the Jacobs, you're looking for those who will turn their face towards you and walk with you as a friend. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the blessing that you will deliver through these words to those who will hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.